Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night, and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you are just joining us, we are counting down the top 15 most essential episodes of Game of Thrones to rewatch before the final season. We are on our 11th episode of our countdown, which is season five, episode 10, Mother's Mercy, written by Weiss and Benioff and directed by David Nutter. Um, if you uh, haven't been following along with us, what we're doing is we're counting down chronologically 14 episodes. Then we'll get to number 15, which will be out of order, but is the one that we have decided is like the most quintessential, I don't know, the most important, whatever adjective we want to use, Game of Thrones episode. It's the one. Uh, but for right now, we are leaping to the end of, of season five. Having just done episode eight, Heart Home, we are now on Mother's Mercy. Um, before we get into our discussion of the episode and the interview that we have uh, for this episode... Richard and I want to remind you really quickly that if you're not already a Vanity Fair subscriber, now is the time to join us before Game of Thrones season really kicks off and you want to read all of our coverage. If you go to VanityFair.com slash Thrones and enter the promo code Thrones, you get one year for $15 as print and digital access, or you can do one year for $15 that's just digital access. Once again, that's promo code Thrones. Richard, why would people be crazy not to take care, take advantage of this opportunity? 
Well, because subscriber almost rhymes with Kyburn, who we all love, right? So don't you want to be closer to the weird necromancing, um, you know, scientist guy? Um, plus yeah, also but- it's, it's a great magazine with lots of good pictures and articles. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that too. Uh, be like Kyburn, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Subscribe a- today. <laughs> I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. So what we do um, on this podcast, if you've never listened to us do it before, is we hand out a few awards before we get into our general discussion of the episode. Uh, but first, I do a 15-word recap in case you didn't watch the episode itself. So this is this is how it goes. It goes like this. Jamie loses another kid. Brienne swings. Arya stabs. Sansa leaps. Cersei walks. John dies. What a crazy episode of Game of Thrones. But a lot happens in this episode, which is interesting (laughs) because, you know, you're, we're used to the penultimate episode of a season being the kind of big episode, but here it's like, no, no, we're going to save everything for the end. And like literally everything happens. So we talked about this, um, last, uh, when we, when we talked about the season four finale, that like the finales really start being like these big showstoppers, like going forward. But yeah, you're right. Like initially it, uh, it was the earlier episodes, the, the episodes eight, the episode nine that really got us. But anyway, okay. So here is where we give out our obvious MVP of the episode. It's, I think it's hard to pick an obvious one. Um, but I'm going to go with Sansa who makes it the fuck out of Winterfell, uh, with a little help from Theon in this episode. What do you say, Richard? My obvious MVP is not Cersei, but Lena Headey. <laughs> yeah. For like doing that and committing to it. And like, you know, there's a certain amount of bravery that that takes. Uh, to, not just cause she's naked. I mean, you know, we should all be a little bit less prudish about that, but like more that, um, the, the other sort of debasement things being thrown at her, people, you know, hurling n- nasty words at her. It's like, you know, it's just pr- pretend. Yes. But like, I'm sure that there was still some hardship in that. So hats off to her. Yeah, we should mention that that she did. Uh, Lena Kennedy did use a body double for this, so there are like the like so for the wide shots of um Cersei, it's like Lena Kennedy's face CG'd on another woman's body, but that doesn't discount what you just said because there are a lot of shots where you don't see the full body, and that is definitely Lena Kennedy walking the street having stuff thrown and screamed at her. Yeah, so it's still like a huge performance. Uh, from like one of the show's all-time MVPs. I agree. Uh, sneaky MVP of the episode. I'm gonna give it to that shame bell. Uh, and maybe the woman <laughs> ringing it too, but definitely the the bell. Uh, is a sneaky MVP. What do you say, Richard? Can a loud bell be sneaky, really? Um, <laughs> no, I got to give it to my girl Alaria, even though you know her plotline has not uh, been the most successful. You know that that the the kiss kiss of death thing. I mean, that's just cruel, man. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Let them think they're getting away and. 
No. I mean, actually, you know, then Ollie kind of does a similar thing where he's like, oh, John, um, we have news about your uncle we haven't mentioned in four seasons. <laughs> and only to kill him. Yeah, that one was not just like a, a knife in the gut for show watchers, but for like book readers at well who were like, Uncle Bench is coming back. I'm ready. I've been ready. And then, uh, never mind. Okay. Benjamin uh, is not so- back. <laughs> Um, a timeless reference mm-hmm. to a classic 2018 film. Um, all right. So now, now's the part of the episode where we do our, like, our terrible impressions of accents on the show and try to read out, like, our favorite line or the best line, most memorable line from the episode. I think, uh, I'm gonna go first. I'm gonna go with, you want a good girl, but you need the bad pussy. Uh, oh, Richard, wow. what's your line? That's a good one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Mine is, you want a good girl, but you need the bad pussy. Sorry, guys. Wow. Because we had to do it twice. <laughs> we had to do it a twice. A line so right, good, that's... they said it twice. <laughs> this is the, probably the most infamous line in Game of Thrones history. So there you go. That is from Tyene San herself, uh, whispered to Braun. Okay. And then best dress for the episode. I'm going to go with, um, our girl, Marcella, who this is her last episode. It wasn't until, you know, one of our, in one of our early interviews with, uh, executive producer Brian Cogman for this podcast, he mentioned that he thought of Jamie's trip to Dorne, which is like not viewed as the most successful deviation from the books. But when Jamie goes to Dorne, Brian Cogman said that he viewed it as sort of like, uh, Jamie seeing himself as a classic knight rescuing a princess. And once I thought of it that way, like the fact that Marcella is dressed in like literally pink gauze this entire season. Um, made a lot more sense to me. So, so shout out to Marcella and her huge pink princess dress, uh, that gets a bit of nose blood on it, uh, in this episode. What about you, Richard? I mean, does like Aria changing faces count as like dressing? <laughs> sure. Cause if so, sure, I mean, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. All right. So, so Arya and her, her disguise as a young woman, a young murderous woman. Um, I, I guess that, like, I think a backup best dress, and now I regret not saying it, is, uh, the mountain, cause this is the first time we see him in, like, his crazy armor that he wears for, like, the rest of the series. So, um, yeah, don't count out that, that great Kyburn creation, the mountain. Um, all right. And then lastly, we're going to do, like, a, a ship, someone that we are, rooting for to be together, whether romantically or not, uh, an inanimate object or a person. Uh, do you have anything here, Richard? I have like anyone with Benjen because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just, again, it's such a, it's so sad. We think we're going to get, we're going to get reunited with him. So maybe the audience and Benjen, that's who I'm shipping. Okay. I love that. Um, I'm going to do, um, Jorah and Dario who go off on this adventure to find Daenerys and like, we'll find out in season six, they like kind of squabble the whole way, but like, wouldn't it have been more fun if they just like forget the dragon queen, enjoy each other sort of thing. Absolutely. So. You know, I'm always rooting <laughs> for that. So, um, all right. So mother's mercy, this is a huge episode of game of Thrones. Obviously like the Cersei's walk of atonement, which is something from the books and something, you know, readers were really looking forward to. Um, and, and that sounds gross, like readers not looking forward to it, but just sort of, it's a big moment. So, you know, this is a thing that was coming, but it's almost like swallowed up by the other huge culture shaking thing that happened in this episode, which is the death of Jon Snow. 
And this is a really big, um, moment in the fandom, in Game of Thrones, et cetera, et cetera, because Jon Snow dies in the books and that's it. So this is like the first time that a major character died on the show that like readers didn't necessarily know what was going to happen. Yeah, because and the so, fifth book ends yeah. with him d- dead. And there's yeah. all this theory about, is he going to warg into something? Because the, f- yeah. the fifth book starts with a kind of seemingly unrelated story about someone warging into another person, which we've seen more of on the show, but in the books, yeah, kind of yeah. like a new concept. Um, mm-hmm. So really, yeah, this was the show answering a burning question that readers had had in a way that like hadn't really happened before. Well, and I guess it doesn't really answer it, right? Because like, well, that's the whole thing begin- is that, beginning yeah. Of the answer, yeah. That's, that's the whole thing is like the showrunners and HBO and stuff like that were like, okay, Jon Snow dies in the books. The readers don't know what happens next. So we can make this like our big cliffhanger. But the problem is like the readers had had years to sit with this like thing that happened in the books. And so they were so sure that Jon Snow was not dead, including myself. So sure that like immediately the conversation becomes like, yeah, but he's not dead. And then it become, became this like massive, crazy, weird, tension between the fandom and the show where like all the actors in every interview are lying and saying Kit Harrington's not coming back. Um, meanwhile, Kit Harrington is being like spotted in Belfast and there's this little question of like, has Kit Harrington cut his hair and like all this, all this stuff. This is an insane thing that happened around like one fictional character's death on a show. Um, you know, and it's very different from the red, the red wedding or Ned's death or something like that. Like this is a new kind of major death on the show. Yeah, and we'll talk about it in a subsequent episode, but you know, the resolution of this storyline, I feel like plays out in a way that never, it won't, wouldn't have in the books and maybe still won't. You know, um, I, I feel like yeah. Martin is less invested in easy fixes as a, a, a television network that needs, to, you know, to keep its biggest cash cow functioning well. Yeah, and I think, I think what, what anyone who's, who works on the show would admit is that, um, at this point, season five, like forward, and probably starting even earlier, they're focusing on like, how do we end this? Right. Do you know what I mean? And so like Martin, I mean, Martin with all my love and admiration, like he hasn't published the next book because he hasn't like figured out how to do all the things. And so the HBO series like takes some short, a lot of shortcuts actually, frankly, going forward. And, um, you know, some of them sit well with me and some of them don't, but like, um, I think what is ultimately true is they were like, we just needed to, right? right. To get it done. Um, and so, you know, it, we could all dream of an alternate reality where George R. R. Martin wrote all of his books first and we get a straight adaptation. But that's unfortunately what didn't happen. And so this is like, this is just a huge pivot point, um, in the conversation. And then like, you know, we should also just talk about, the the Cersei walk because I remember this was like this is such an interesting moment that I remember in the Game of Thrones conversation where I really started to recognize like the intellect the highbrow conversation around Game of Thrones that's not to say that Game of Thrones is not capable of highbrow stuff before but I mean highbrow outside of the geek sphere and I guess I'm specifically talking about the fact that like John Ronson who has written very famously on the subject of shame like John Ronson wrote pieces on Cersei's walk of atonement and shame and and social media culture and stuff like that. And it just felt felt like a new, a new step, a new application of this story onto our like modern conversation. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. I think it's very rare in a lot of ways that you can find connection points from, you know, the whatever time period world this is and like our own, you know, and we're, we're constantly searching for that kind of relevancy, uh, especially yeah. in, in these, this fraught era. Um, this episode, I believe, aired before, uh, winter came to America, but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, but yeah, yeah, I think you're totally right that this was a, this was a real point of, of contact between, um, you know, kind of current discourse and this huge water cooler phenomenon show. Yeah, it was just like, it was so big. And then that's not even like half of what happens in this episode, right? Like you've got <clears throat> Sansa and Theon escaping Winterfell. That's another thing that like, um, a, a bunch of people, I guess, were worried that Sansa and Theon were dead <laughs> because they jumped off the high, the high wall of Winterfell. And those of us who had read the books, like, kind of felt like they weren't because Theon jumps off the Winterfell thing onto like a snow. I don't know. It just, it felt like, we knew that they weren't dead, but that was still a question mark that people had. Um, Arya does this, like, Arya goes hard on her vengeance murder thing and then goes blind. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then, and then Daenerys, the previous episode, Daenerys hopped on dragon and blew off, but here we see her, like, stranded on her dragon in the middle of nowhere. Sorry. Stranded on her dragon in the middle of nowhere and a bunch of Dothraki circling her. So it's just like, it's a bunch. I don't know if I like missed anything. Marcella dies. It's uh, no, it's a really dark time for pretty much everyone on the show. Yeah, like, and we had talked about yeah, yeah. Why why well, except- we, why season five is kind of difficult. This is sort of the cap of that, you know. Um, yeah, and like and like you said, you know, kind of in defense of five, which totally makes sense, is that this is a bridge point. This is the, this is the the dead middle of the show, and so yeah, that you know that it's darkest before the dawn, you know, kind of thing. Um, but it's it's yeah. hard to watch, even down to like smaller details, like um. You know, when Arya is in on her little assassin mission, uh, and, you know, he, it's this guy like abusing these little girls. Like, it's just like, oh, yeah. God, like this is all so grim, um, with yeah. very few moments of, uh, lightness or levity. I mean, I guess, you know, Absolutely. you need the bad pussy is sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's no storyline where you're like, oh, uh, what a relief, we're here. You know, I mean, like, it's uplifting that Sansa escapes Winterfell. That's uplifting. And that's um, one of the best deaths, by the way, when he, th- when he throws that awful woman off the, off the, the battlement or whatever. Yeah, uh, and that's a hilarious, that's like a weird in-camera effect, right? Cause the yeah. camera like swoops away from her and then all of a sudden like, bas- I mean, like, I'm sure it was a CG effect, but it looks like they just threw a dummy over the <laughs> Totally. Side. It's like totally SNL <laughs> and it like makes yeah. this hideous noise. And I think it's interesting that the camera does follow it. Cause a lot of times, you know, someone will get tossed off a wall or out a moon door or whatever. We don't really like <laughs> see them land, you know, and it's like, here we right, go. Right. And it's, and it's kind of satisfying, yeah, exactly. like crunchy. Yeah, very crunchy. By by Miranda, we never liked you. Mm-hmm. Um and then we and then we have this um you know, this this introduction of the idea of zombieism in King's Landing when like Cersei ends her walk and there's the mountain um there to like, you know, take care of her and protect her. And that's a crazy new like we're, you know, good job, Kyburn. Like, well done, buddy, but that's like a crazy new aspect <laughs> of the big, show. Beautiful you know? dynamo Kyburn, you did it. <laughs> I mean, it's a real testament to sticking to your projects, following them through. I really love that Kyvern has emerged as the hero of the still watching, uh, rewatch <laughs> project. I think he's just I a lot of fun. We deserve yeah. <laughs> it's a good time. It's a good time. Um, despite the darkness here and despite how much my memories of this finale are swallowed by the ensuing months of like discussion over whether Jon Snow was coming back or not. Um, 
I, it was interesting. I talked to David Nutter, uh, in a pre, cause he also, the director of this episode also directed The Reigns of Castamere. And he told me that he like didn't want to know that Jon Snow was coming back. So he mm. like didn't read any, like he, he would just like ask them not to tell him basically. Um, and so they didn't. And so that's why when, he, like, I mean, anyone, should maybe have figured it out, but like, that's why he had plausible deniability when Barack Obama asked him if he killed Jon Snow and he said yes. Right. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> did you lie to the president? He's like, no, I just like didn't know. He also, I guess, um, filmed Kit Harrington like saying goodbye to the crew and stuff like that. Like there's a lot of subterfuge, um, around this, which just feels like, like, I get it. You want to preserve the experience of the audience, but it also feels just like a lot of storm and drang for like what is, you know, what, especially given what eventually happens with Johnson's resurrection. Like my, this is where I'm guilty of like getting too attached to my prediction for a series, which is probably why I have like so much stress around this whole time in the fandom. Cause I thought for sure there was no way they were going to end it on a cliffhanger. Cause there was no way they were going to like exhaust themselves trying to lie and pretend that Kit Harrington wasn't going to come back. So I thought Jon Snow was going to die in episode nine and then come back by episode 10. Right. And really that's what they should have done. I still think well, that's because, true. Like, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves um, and we may hint hint be covering this uh, in another, in a subsequent episode, but like the, the resolution to this, like you said, it's like, okay, that's it. Like it, it's, it's this huge setup and this huge cliffhanger and all this subterfuge and all this kind of, you know, sneaking, skulking around and telephoto lenses, you know, of, 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 you know, hair length. And then you're just like <laughs> all that for what it ends up being. It just feels a little bit like, eh. So, but if, so if they'd done it, you're right. If it had been one Sunday, he's dead. The next Sunday, he's back. Fine. Yeah. yeah. Great. I think that would have been great. Like he dies in episode nine and then like it end like, it ends with him like gasping and opening his eyes on the table, which is a great shot from season six. But mm-hmm. like, put that at the end of season five, spare us all the headache, you know, and you still have like a slam bang great episode. My like crack pottiest theory at the time was that George R. R. Martin was like almost done with his book. <laughs> which seems so naive now yeah but i thought he was almost done with his book so i was like okay they're gonna let george do it they're gonna like let george tell the story in his book and that's why they're holding off and so then we can like let george reveal how john so comes back and then we will see it for ourselves in season six that was like something that i had decided that it was like this this great act of like magnanimous charity or whatever but no it was like uh yeah and me you know like and and i gotta say like of course we and, and myself, especially who writes about the show, like are guilty of creating an environment where you can't pull a move like that. Whereas you could have like, I don't know, when you were making Dallas a million years ago and you could bring, you could shoot JR and people think he's actually going to stay dead or something like that. You know what I mean? But like the way that fandom works now, it's impossible to do that. And maybe that's unfair to storytellers. I don't know. But like, it's just... It was a lot, it was a lot of hoopla and it was, it was, um, and I'm sorry that it, it, you know, I'm sure it was like really stressful for the cast, uh, and crew and stuff like that. And, and, uh, sometimes on, on my like most guilt ridden days, I feel bad for the part that I played in that, but like, it also just felt silly to be lied to for so long, you know? So yeah, it's weird to just like flat out lie, not to be coy or whatever, but just be like, no, he's dead, which is like demonstrably not true. So. Well, I think, I think, I think the thing that they told themselves is like, 
okay, he is dead. It doesn't mean he'll stay dead. You know, so they could just say, yes, he's dead. And that that was true. Uh, that's good. The, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The implication that he's not coming back though. That's not true. So anyway, um, all right. Sorry. That became a little bit more of like a uh, therapy time for Joretta for <laughs> the end of season five sure. of Game of Thrones, but it, it became like a crazy thing. Like I don't like, I don't know if I'm telling tales out of school, but like, our old boss, Graydon Carter, used to, like, write me these, like, hand-type note cards. I'm sure you got some, too, Richard. They were, like, these weird precious items that we get from Graydon Carter, from the desk of Graydon Carter. He wrote me several that, like, had the words Jon Snow in them. Like, that's how big this cultural moment was, yeah. that, like, Graydon Carter of any fair was like, ah, oh, Joanna, you know, like, because I had, I had an article that went up right when the finale finished, because... What's funny is, uh, and I'm almost done talking about this, I swear, but like, what's funny is that when this episode aired, you know, I, I try to do some pre-writing based on what I think is going to happen on the show. And I had pre-written a whole post about like how it was inevitable that Jon Snow would come back because I was like so certain that he was going to be resurrected by the end of the episode. Like I was like, okay, they're going to kill him and then bring him back. That's going to happen. So the, I wrote this whole really, really long thing about how and why he was going to come back. And then it became clear that that was not going to happen. So then I had to hurriedly rewrite it to be like, this is why he will come back. So I had that post ready to go, um, mostly because I had already written it um, as soon as the episode finished and I hit publish. And that like, I think that was one of our top posts of that year, just because like people were upset. And then, you know, we really, really quickly had this like don't worry he's coming back posts here are all the like textual reasons why um anyway but you Uh, know in an interesting way i know again we are talking more about another episode not this episode but in an interesting way bringing him back is kind of a violation of the covenant that the show forced viewers into several seasons ago here's a show that's like no no we are killing main characters ruthlessly permanently you know um, in, 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 in the form of Ned, in the form of Rob and Catelyn. Um, and then, and so, so it, it finally kind of like pushed viewers into that kind of submission, like, like reeked them, you know, into being like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, then to like just say, oh, no, 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 just kidding. He's, he's, he's not actually dead. I don't know. It just feels like it's, it's a big, uh, 180 for the show in terms of like how it treats both characters and fans. Yeah. All right. So that's, I mean, we just keep wanting to talk about this next thing that we're going to talk about. So we should probably wrap this up and, and save that for our next discussion. Usually I make you wait till the end of the episode to find out what the next thing we're going to talk about is, but obviously we're going to talk about season six, episode two at home, uh, where spoiler alert, John Snow comes back. So that is our episode next week. Stay tuned for our interview with Hannah Waddingham, who plays Septa Unella, the shame nun herself. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I'm thrilled to welcome to the podcast Hannah Waddingham, who played Septa Unella in Mother's Mercy. 
I have about a million questions for you, but the first one I have to ask is the one that everyone who found out I was talking to you wanted me to ask, which was, what is it like to be turned into a meme? Everyone I meet that then works out who I play in the show, first of all, they're shocked, thank God, that I don't actually look like I'm having every single period on one day. And secondly, that they all seem to have this thing in everyone's office or within their family or this thing about sending each other the meme or the gif or just saying shame to each other. I mean, it's like I I had just had no idea. And I actually don't think that David Benioff and Dan Weiss knew that it would go like this either. What do you think it is about it, about your ringing of the bell and your intoning of those words? I think it's because it's universal. You know, I mean, <laughs> we've seen people kind of superimposing me in the back of shots of like Trump and, you know, um, uh, OJ Simpson. It, you know, anyone that <laughs> people want to vilify, yeah, yeah. they whack me behind. <laughs> so it's kind of. <laughs> Everyone knows me as the shame nun rather than Septa Unella. But, you know, it, it makes it almost cartoon-like. But I will say that it's hilariously the monosyllabic role that just keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so let's, let's, let's hop back to what you said about the fact that it takes a little while for people to work out that you played um, this character because as a personal fan of your stage work, I know you to be a oh, very... Yeah, I know you to be a very glam individual who plays these very, you yeah. know, like, you don't look anything like this. And so... Oh my God, I've never done anything like this ever. No. Um, so, you know, I, I, I feel like people are going scrambling to Google to find out what you look like when you're not sort of <laughs> veiled in wimples like this. But so, yeah. you know, what, what was it like to, to strip down and put on these robes and look so severe? How did you get into that mode? Um, well, let me go back a little step further first, because, you know, we were saying about always playing the glamorous roles. I, I was eight months pregnant when I auditioned for that role. Wow. And when I say I looked like a ship in full sail, I was literally, it was like I'd swallowed 15 bowling balls that it all were just on the front of my body. And I I literally looked like I was about to pop, but just out of the front. <laughs> and I've always said to David and Dan, what was it? Because when I turned up at the casting, all the women were kind of a foot and a half shorter than me and about 20 years older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because in, the, because in the books, it says a hulking brute of a woman. And... I remember saying to David and Dan, you know, what was it? And they were like, it was your eyes. It was the way you just, the way you glared at the casting director that was the thing that, that, that did it for them. They thought she could, you know, do all sorts of hideous things to someone, you know. So when I, when I got it, I was a little bit in shock really, because I had literally gone along to, um, kind of keep my hand in to meet the guys so that once I'd had my baby that was imminent, um, I, I, they'd remember me for next time for when I was wanting to get back in the game, as it were. Right. And um, so when I then got the role, I suddenly found myself, going back to your question, 
the reason why I'm saying that is just to give you a bit of info about where I was as a person when I first put that wimple on. It was really intense for me. I mean, I went into the makeup trailer the first day. Bear in mind, I'd had my baby nine weeks previously. And the very first thing I shot was the top of the stairs at the beginning of the Walk of Atonement. So, but the funny thing was, when I walked into the makeup trailer, they basically scrubbed my face added hairs into my eyebrows where we would all take them out. Right, wow. And plaited my hair down to my head, stuck the wimple on and shoved me out the door. And I'm not joking. I was literally like Edward Munch's The Scream standing outside <laughs> the makeup trailer just like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Thinking, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm, are you telling me I'm going to be on... Int- I thought they would do the whole pared-down makeup. You know, I thought they'd do no makeup makeup. A little gloss, something. Yeah, so then at first, I was... Because, I, because I'd never been so stripped bare, it shocked me as well, and I felt a bit kind of discombobulated. I didn't really know what to do with myself. But once I'd put on the, uh, you know, the habit and the wimple and all the rest of it, it actually lent itself to it so much it gave me who she is she never looks in a mirror and from that day on when they were getting me ready to play her I didn't even glance in the mirror I didn't want to know and it, in that moment when they were kind of scrubbing my face a bit to make my cheeks a bit kind of um, you know rubbed in and rugged and putting those extra hairs in and stuff I mean, when I went from season five to then season six, I had a different makeup artist and she kind of started to do a little bit of pared down makeup. And I was like, no, 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 no. Just brush my eyebrows the wrong way, put some hairs in and I'm good to go. There's so much of the work that you did on the show is about, you know, this brutal treatment of these women, um, this, this shame culture, this really breaking down of these figures as played by, you know, um, Natalie Dormer or, or Lena Headey, does that take yeah. any kind of emotional toll on you uh, to be engaged in something like that? Or are you just able to cleanly separate your own emotions from the work that you're doing? This character is so far removed from me, a humorless, devout, austere woman that I had to completely, more than any role I've ever played, park me. And even talking to you about it, I feel her rippling through my bloodstream again. The unswerving, austere, cold. And there's nothing, you know, when people say, oh, you know, um, all this torture and everything. I just think, no, 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 not torture. It, you know, extracting the truth. Extracting the truth from these, from these disgusting people. So given that your craft is such that you are able to do this, you're able to separate your emotions, you're able to, you know, sort of disappear into this character, what does it then mean to do something like the actual literal walk through the streets of Dubrovnik when there was so much, um, I know, infrastructure put around it to try to shield, um, you know, the the body double was walking through the street to shield from prying eyes of paparazzi, whoever it might be. There was a lot of work done to sort of protect the filming. So what does that whole process um, do for your process? I think the biggest thing that made it an easy job was David Nutter, the director. 
he's just, if there's anyone I'm in awe of, it's him. Because I had never worked on anything that was such a, I felt like I was this tiny, tiny little fleck in a massive juggernaut. And he was so inclusive. We met before and he was like, right, you and I need to decide exactly the tone of her voice, whether she changes her tone, at what point she rings the bell in that process. And I remember thinking at the time, dude, I'm just going to ring the bell. Chill, you've been. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, he was right. There had to be that solid movement, like she has done it a million times. She couldn't care less who this woman is. In fact, the fact that she is who she is means she will connect even less with her. And he was brilliant because... You know, you're saying about the, the 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 kind of the enormity of it. He was so brilliant shutting down that area, those areas. And bear in mind, we go through one area, then we go into a closer, then we go down like a little down the steps and round the corner and all the rest of it. He made the supporting artists, as they're now called, he made them so fired up and so aggressive that Lena and I were even a bit shaken by it. Wow. Now, that is brilliant because he will get honest glances from us that we couldn't probably even achieve if we tried. There were some moments where we, he would cut, shout cut and both of us were shaking, mm-hmm. particularly Lena. Um, I mean, one thing on a funnier note that was a bit of a nightmare for me was that her body double, lovely Rebecca Van Cleve, mm-hmm. was much taller than Lena. <laughs> so when I was walking behind her, I was like, right, hold on. Am I am I looking at that eye level or am I looking down at Lena's level? Right. Where's the tennis ball for me to look so, at? I mean, yeah. So then you're like, oh, I don't know where to look. Yeah. <laughs> and also when the body double, when they would shout, because this, this girl had never done any naked work at all. Mm-hmm. And she was brilliant. So when they would shout cut, she obviously hadn't thought through the fact that there would be crowds everywhere and none of wardrobe could get to her with a dressing gown. So I would try and wrap my habit around her to cover her modesty. Yeah. (laughs) But I did that a couple of times. Well, I did that a couple of times and then it made me feel too compassionate. Oh. So I had to stop. Okay. And I purposely used it. When she was standing there, I just thought, no, I have to let you just stand there. Because when they then shout that the cameras are rolling again, that would be harder for me to get into the right headspace. And actually, at one point, David Nutter said to me, I don't know whether you remember, she falls on the floor at one point. Yeah. Cersei falls on the floor and gathers herself, looks up at the red keep and starts to walk again. He said, so at that point, maybe help her up. And I was adamant. Bearing in mind, this is a great big director. This was my first day on set. I just went, "Mm, no, no. Sorry, would you mind if I don't do that? And he was like, oh. You wouldn't help another woman up? And I was like, absolutely not. Uh, in fact, if anything, I think I would, that would be the only moment when you perhaps see that Septuinella is enjoying this because she thinks she's just a hideous creature that deserves everything she's getting. And I think that moment for me, whether people realize they're seeing it or not, that moment is what makes people go, gosh, she's fucking horrible, this woman. <laughs> Yeah. Even when a woman is collapsed on the floor with blood on her all over and shit and God knows what else, she's still not, she's just looking at her like a dog. 
That's amazing. And it's, and it's incredible for you to be able to, to stay in that mindset. What does that do then to, you know, given that you have to be in that mindset that, that, um, regarding the Cersei character as vulgar, what does that do to your relationship to like, Lena oh, we Healy? had a brilliant relationship. Okay. We had a brilliant relationship. We got on brilliantly because <laughs> we're both real girls, girls and a little bit naughty and, you know, just, you know, a little bit irreverent and we just clicked immediately, thankfully. Um, and just kind of hung out and, you know, she would, she would laugh and go, seriously, could they have chosen anyone with a bigger, sillier smile and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) not such a fool (laughs) and so silly and so kind of musical theater and showbiz. And I mean, I was saying things to her, like, really, I should be walking behind you going, shame, 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 (laughs) scatting away, (laughs) kissing a leg. That's a, She's like, please do that. <laughs> that's an outtake uh, we would all pay a million dollars to see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it did make me laugh that when they then did it on Family Guy mm-hmm. and Peter Griffin is dressed as me and doing that, I thought, uh, hello, I so did that first. It's just no one saw it. <laughs> the cameras weren't rolling, but I Even did the it. scenes, you know, Lena's and my scenes in um, the, in the, the torture cell yeah. in uh, the landing. I mean, you know, the, the director was just like, right, right, guys, just, can you just, I mean, like, sorry, sorry, sorry. And I'd go, right, can you just give me a second just to relax my face again? And we'd be laughing. And I was like, oh, let <laughs> me just, you know. And at one point, Miguel Sapochnik, who was doing the, uh, the, the, the particular scene we were talking about before, you know, the ladle yeah. stuff. Um, he was just like, right, I need you to do less. And I was like, okay. Then we'd cut. And so I need you, I need you to do less. And he was totally right. But at the time, I think I said to him something like, I can't do any less. You should have hired like a dinner plate with flesh on it. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your, I'm going to, I'm going to call it your death scene. You know, if, if you, oh my God. if you come back in season eight, we, we, we couldn't possibly wring that information out of you. So let's just, let's just call it your death scene, which starts with uh, a torture scene. your torture scene, which starts with what we like to refer to as, I guess, wine boarding, waterboarding, but with wine. Um, right. And then, but do you know what? Let me tell you this. Yeah. In no uncertain terms, other than my four day childbirth, it was the worst day of my life, and I'm not exaggerating. Oh, no. Why? Tell me why. It was originally meant to be a rape scene. She was meant to be raped by the mountain. And even though it's hideous, I was actually all for that because I thought, Christ, that's really, that's really something for a woman of the cloth to be brutalized like that. Right. We then get there. So, of course, we had agreed with my agent that which I wouldn't mind being seen on screen, that which I didn't, blah, 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 blah. And so we were good to go. Then the night before, I was told that actually I would need a wetsuit top for it. So I was like, what? Why do I need a wetsuit? If she's only... In the new script said, Cersei empties the remainder of her glass of red wine in Septu in Ella's face. And I was like... Seriously, I know I'm going to be lying on a table, but why am I going to need that? And it actually transpired that because the character had been so brilliantly hated, my character, in season five, David Benioff and Dan Weiss were just like, look, Hannah, the fans are going to be expecting more than just a bit of red wine in your face. It needs to be 
uh, more like a full carafe. Yeah. Now, this is being said to me while I'm strapped, fully strapped to a wooden table. So they did it a couple of times and I'm fairly fearful of water. I'm not a great swimmer. I can't dive. And I'm basically being waterboarded. Then they say, while I'm still strapped to the table, we need to raise the stakes. It needs to be this full carafe. And I was like, and at that moment, I was like, right, I can either make a big fuss of this and say I can't do it, or I can just get on with it and know that they're not actually going to kill me. (laughs) But in that moment, I was just like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. If I'd known it was this, I'd never have done it. And so it became, and Lena was uncomfortable doing it as well, because she knew I was desperately uncomfortable and quite frightened. Yeah. That scene of, what is it, one minute 30, of which you see the carafe poured in my face for like five seconds, 10 hours. Oh my gosh. I was waterboarded for nearly 10 hours. At the end of that day, I had lost my voice from screaming, like literally lost my voice, couldn't even whisper, and had no voice for two weeks. Had to go to a voice specialist which is frightening for someone who's a singer, thinking, oh my God, have I seriously trashed my voice? Because at one point, and they didn't even use it, the mountain put his hand over my mouth while I was screaming. And the voice specialist said that that's what had wrecked my vocal cords. My hair had gone completely lilac, lilac lilac-y purple color from the grape juice, i.e. the red wine. And I had bruises all over my neck, arms, waist, hips, knees, ankles from pulling against the leather straps to get that tension in the body. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) In fact, at one point, one of the crew leant over and was like, Han, are you all right? Because we we are actually waterboarding you. (laughs) And also, they they asked me to not raise my head because it was obvious that the neck strap, they, they went you're going to have to try and just move your head from side to side rather than lifting your head up. And I was like, yeah, but it's going right up my nose, all glugging in my ears. And then, of course, I have a full carafe of wine or or grape juice that would then leak all down my back, all in my underwear, all down my legs. And then I'm sitting, they couldn't keep wiping it up because time is of the essence and time is money and all that stuff. So I was just, you know, they dried me off a few times with a hairdryer, but you're still damp and horrible and sticky I imagine yeah um you mentioned it's it's so interesting to me because I um I had always actually kind of assumed when Cersei leaves and closes the door that there was some sort of sexual assault involved behind the closed door there um and then I've had Mm. people disagree with me and that's fine um do you can you talk to me a little bit more about the um intended sexual assault and and what conversations you guys had around well I think it was just seen that uh, they couldn't do it because they had so many complaints about the rape of Sansa, which is understandable. I mean, it was horrific and brilliant and did what it needed to do, but it meant that we then couldn't do that, which I was disappointed with, actually, because, you know, that kind of abuse to someone of the cloth would have, but it would have left the audience appalled by it, but also not enjoying it, but you know what I mean, that there would have been an element of of she's getting her comeuppance for allowing 
all of this, you know, for, for Cersei to have been scrubbed with a wire brush and her hair to be cut off with a knife, with her head being nicked, you know, if I separate myself and look at it as an audience member, that woman, that, that head scepter is an horrific being herself. So therefore, of course, Cersei is going to do the same thing, if not worse, to her. Um, and I would have liked for it to have been, for, for, not, for, some, for something to have been seen more than the door just shutting. But David and Dan thought, no, it's better to leave it to the imagination of whatever people think. And the thing that's quite good about it is that everyone always gone, oh, we, oh, I'm really hoping that we're seeing you back, and which is good because it makes you feel like you've actually move people in the way that you're meant to. And it leaves people not knowing why they like the character because they know she's an absolute bitch. Yeah, she's a very powerful figure, as as you mentioned. Um, can you can you tell me then, um, having having worked on the show, having done it, when did you realize how much of an impact your character, your performance had um, on the culture? The next day after the Walk of Atonement, mm-hmm. I mean, the internet and social media just went nuts, like just crazy. I was, crazy. It was everywhere yeah. already. The gifts and the memes were already there. There were also all these very interesting, almost academic articles that I saw that came out at the same time uh, about the nature of shame, about also about like yeah. internet mm. culture and shame, and you know, yeah. our, our like how much we are reflected in that moment. You know, like don't think you're too separate from this woman ringing the this gang, bell. And the gang you know. mentality, yeah, the gang mentality, and, yeah. and being and, and being led by a ringleader, yeah. It's still difficult now because I get some very serious um, tweets and things from people saying, could you lend your, you know, your name to shaming X, Y, and Z people? And I just don't reply because I just think, whoa, 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 guys, what are you doing? Wow, what? I'm an actress. I'm an actress and I'm thrilled that... What I did as that character moved you to think that I can lend some kind of support or weight or power or fear or whatever you think you need. But no, 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 no. So I don't even, I don't even respond. So they want, they want the headline that's something like Septa Onella or I guess probably shame, yeah, shame, yeah, shame yeah, none yeah, weighs shame in none on X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yeah. No, if I had done that, you would see it a lot in, in social media. I get asked that a lot. Wow. And then there's the funny side of it, which is like every time we come around to Halloween, <laughs> I get sent so many funny pictures of people with like, you know, a blow up doll stuck to their front with ketchup all over it. <laughs> and then that's all funny. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, or like me, it's people dressed as me, but with red wine all over their faces. <laughs> or, you know. You're like, I can and laugh about that. it now. I'm no longer sticky with yeah. grape juice. Yeah, exactly. This is funny now. That's yeah, you feel like going, seriously, dudes, you've no idea. <laughs> but but all the rest of it, I, I have to be very careful of and, I, and I, don't, I don't want any part of because at the end of the day, that's their battles to fight and would not do me any good. But I'm glad that it's obviously something that, this is what I mean about, I don't think even David and Dan... Um, and George R. R. Martin himself. <clears throat> I can't imagine that it was something they thought would... I mean, we've, I talked about it with David and Dan. They were just like, crikey, <laughs> did you expect that? And I was like, no, thanks for that, guys. 
Yeah. <laughs> Just went crazy. Well, fortunately, if you don't want to be recognized at Septonella, you can avoid that because you look, once again, nothing like um, the character when you're walking down the street. The only time I was actually recognized facially was, it was hilarious. I was on a plane at like six o'clock in the morning with my daughter, fully in mummy mode, just doing my own thing, getting her settled. And this guy, no makeup on, you know, just like as we do, just getting it done, scrubbed. I had a cap on. I was just, you know, doing my thing. And there was a guy over the other side of the, of the of this little plane mm-hmm. <clears throat> that went, would I be right in saying you can ring my bell? Wow. And I was like, oh, and I went, oh my God, note to self, stick a wow. little mascara on, lady. <laughs> oh, you'd go anywhere. I love that. That's a new barometer. Do I not look well today? Uh, have I been yeah, recognized I mean, as Septonella? Exactly. But the funny thing is, so that's the only time anyone in the street has. Mm-hmm. A couple of people have recognized me, actually. Um, two people came up to me and just went, you are her, aren't you? And so I didn't mean to go, oh, yes, do you mean? I was like, I don't know who, what, who do you think I am? And they're like, you're the shame nun, aren't you? And it was my eyes, they said, my eyebrows and my eyes, just the gaze of my eyes. Yeah. And the funny thing I have a lot, uh, well, every time I do a Comic-Con, you know, because I go dressed as me and normal. But, of course, there's a picture of me as her behind my head. Right. The amount of people that come up and go, When's she coming back? Are you sitting there? Has she gone to the loo? <laughs> but some people can be quite rude. And it makes oh, no. me realize how rude people are to like talent handlers or whoever. They're like, when's she coming back? Well, you're like, yeah, I see you. Yeah. I see how it is. Wow. Just awful. <laughs> you're like, this is what I can look like when all the yeah. hair, hairs of my yeah, eyebrows yeah. are in the right place. Thank you very much. In fact, there was at one point when, when, uh, when we were filming The Walk of the Tone, when the, um, the makeup artist approached me, touched up my hairs on my eyebrows. Then she went to my top lip and I literally reeled back like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. I was like, whoa, 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 leaning back to get her to avoid putting hairs on my top lip. <laughs> oh, we could have had a, a nice little stash. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like a monobrow and a tash going on. I was like, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. We are drawing the line. I'm not having a mustache. Interesting. <laughs> Well, we all we all need to have our lines somewhere, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I will let you go. Thank you again, and um, You're so I so appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. All right. That does it for season five, episode ten, Mother's Mercy. As we said, we, next time we will be talking about season six, episode two, Home. Uh, so you're gonna want to take a look at that richard in the meantime where can people find you i'm, I'm gonna be out looking for benjamin oh ben. he's got to be out there somewhere but and in the meantime you know i'll have my phone with me so i'll be tweeting at rylaws and posting things on vup.com uh joanna will where will you be until the next episode well obviously i'll be smearing poisonous lipstick on my face and kissing whoever i can possibly find um, but also you'll find me on vanityfair.com and follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez and we will see you next time. The run for revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am friendly, Butch. 
Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah, that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 